1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we've read this several times, so I'm just going to go ahead and read it. You can, you can remain seated. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. There is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray that you would give us instruction this morning as we prepare our hearts for our communion time in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry about that. I forgot to put the microphone where it should be. (laughs) At least it's not in my mouth like it was last week. So hopefully it's a little better this week. Um, But we're looking here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we've been talking about the coming day of the Lord. And we've worked our way through 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and it ends with, therefore, encourage one another with these words. And the encouragement comes from the very fact that, you know what, we're not going to be around when the day of the Lord comes. We're going to be taken back to heaven. Amen. God's coming back. The Lord is coming back. Jesus Christ is coming back. It tells us, in the clouds at The appointed time that only he knows. We don't know when it will happen. Nothing has to happen before that event takes place. We refer to it as the snatching away or the rapture of the church. And on that, on that, in that moment, in that millisecond, all believers, both dead and alive, the dead will have their bodies resurrected to meet their souls, and we who are still remain alive will be caught up, just instantly glorified, to be with the Lord in the clouds, and he'll be taking us back to heaven with him. And so after that event, we understand that God begins what we call the coming day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is not a single day. It's not a single event, really. It's a combination of events. And, and it starts really with the rapture of the church. That's the one thing that when that happens, if you come to church some Sunday and nobody's here, okay, and you're left behind, as the series says, um, you just want to remember it, you better get ready. Because there's going to be hell unleashed on earth by the Lord himself to judge all wickedness. And so we've been talking about this, this day of the Lord. And you remember when Jesus came the first time, we celebrate that at Christmas. But he came the first time, he came humbly. He came to be what? Our Savior, right? Well, the second time he returns he will be not our savior, but he will be coming back as judge, okay, to execute his judgment here on earth. And if you follow the news at all, which may not be a good thing, actually, nowadays, but there's a lot of discontent, there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of um, curiosity, there's a lot of fear that's really playing its way out. I mean, you even think of weather people, you know, the meteorologists. I mean, what are they usually talking about? They're either lingering about the destructive storms that have taken place, okay, or they're talking about the threats that are coming down the pike. You know, very seldom do you hear a weatherman say, it's just beautiful today. I have no news to report. The sun's shining. Everybody's happy. That's it. No, they're usually focused on something that is attention-grabbing. And even news anchors do the same thing, right? The current headlines are always tugging at our emotions, and they're usually negative emotions. And so, you know, I used to be a news junkie, and I swore off that years ago, and I think it's done me good. Because if you're, if you're just a news junkie and you just will follow the news, um, you know, boy, there's not a whole lot of hope. There's just not. And that's not where our minds really should be. And, but within each one of us, I would have to say this, that there is this almost insatiable curiosity, you could say, to know what's going to happen. We want to know what the weather's going to be on Wednesday. We want to know if we're going to be out of this muggy, humid, East Coast weather we've been having, right? Um, We want the fall weather of the Bay Area where it cools down to less than 50 degrees every night rather than lingering at like 75 with humidity. That's just very odd. We want to know what the market is going to be doing. We want to know what the economy is going to be doing. We want to know 
Will my candidate win the next election? We want to know all these things. We want to somehow pull back the curtain and be able to see the future. Could you imagine if you could do that? To take a look into the mysteries of tomorrow. Now, occasionally, here on the West Coast, the left coast we live, um, you see articles. You hear scientists on news programs. And they're always proclaiming, you know what? The West Coast is going to get hit with the big one. Right? You're always hearing this. The big earthquake's going to happen. And basically, because of this giant earthquake, there's going to be this huge tsunami. It's going to wipe out everything from Washington all the way down to the middle of California. That's what scientists believe. And it could happen. I think one day it probably will happen. I think if we live here in Redwood City, we could be oceanfront property one day. Literally. Okay. Um, And we hear all these, you know, uh, scientists and everything telling us this stuff. But we continue to live here, don't we? I mean, not many people have moved because, oh, I'm moving from California because there's going to be a big earthquake. The scientists said so. No. And, you know, we don't like to move. Most people don't like to move because moving is a hassle. Relocating to a different area is a big hassle. You have to get a new home and a different job and deal with all the prediction, everything that comes, goes along with that. All right, we don't like that. But what if you knew for certain that the prediction the weatherman made or the prediction that the scientists have made that pretty soon California is going to fall into the ocean and is going to be no more? And it's going to happen in two weeks. And you, without a doubt, it was going to happen. You would be a fool to stay here, would you not? If you knew for certain, would you heed that warning? You probably would. But most of us know scientists can't be absolutely certain concerning their predictions. They never are. I mean, just look at the poor weatherman every day, right? On the evening news, he gets up there, and even with all their modern forecasting technology, everything, no weatherman has ever got on the news and said, you know what, I'm 100% correct all the time. No, even they themselves say, yeah, it's kind of a, you know, shoot in the dark almost. We think it's going to do this but we can't be 100% accurate. I think most of us would probably take our chances with the scientists predicting California will one day go into the ocean. We want to take our chances and say, you know, they predicted this before and we're not just going to flee for that reason um, because they think it's not going to happen. And I think when it comes to the day of the Lord, when it comes to prophecy in the Bible, I really believe that's why a lot of people, even a lot of God's people, ignore God's continuous warning about impending judgment on all sinners. It's like, well, yeah, I know the Bible says that, but come on, it's been 2,000 years. I think Jesus is coming back probably one day, or I'll, more likely I'll go to be with him. I'll die and go to be with him, absent from the bodies, be present with the Lord. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, nothing seems to be really happening about the Lord returning. But the Bible repeatedly warns that God's righteous judgment is not just highly probable, but it's absolutely certain. It's absolutely certain. One day Christ will return and he will carry out his judgment here on this earth. Paul told the Athenian philosophers in Acts 17 31, he told them this, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. See, the next time Jesus comes back, he will not be coming back as Savior. He will be coming back as Lord, as King, as Judge. But most people kind of shrug that off. And, you know, they kind of conclude, well, you know what? I mean, yeah, maybe that'll happen. Maybe it won't. You know, I haven't killed anybody. I'm not a terrorist. I haven't raped anybody. I think I'll be okay. And they forget the fact that the Bible says, no, nobody's okay. Nobody is okay. That all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. There's none righteous. No, not one. 
We can't stand in our own goodness. And it's very simple because the Bible says we have none. We have zero. There's nothing good within us. Now that crushes our ego. I get it. It's not a very positive message to hear on a Sunday morning maybe. But it's the truth. It's the truth. It's kind of like going to the doctor and being diagnosed with cancer. And you say, well, doc, how bad is it? Well, you know, whatever. You don't want that kind of thing. Right? You want them to be honest. Yeah, you got two days. You got three weeks. You got three years. You would respect the doctor much more if he was honest with you, even though the news was hard to hear, rather than somebody who just glosses over everything. And so everything is coming down to this day, the day of the Lord. I mean, Christ is the center of history. Every time you sign a check, you're acknowledging who Christ is, right? B.C., before Christ, A.D., in the year of our Lord. The whole calendar the whole world history is built around him. He came first to provide the sacrifice for our sins on Calvary so that he could redeem his people. But secondly, he will come the second time to punish the wicked and to establish his kingdom with his saints. He promised over and over again that he would come again. He promised it explicitly and he promised it repeatedly. The Old Testament itself speaks of the probably 19 sometimes, of the day of the Lord, of this day of judgment that's going to happen. In the New Testament, we find it four to five times. And so the book of Revelation describes the events surrounding this coming day of the Lord in great detail. And we'll be looking at that actually next week. But the return of our Lord Jesus Christ in judgment is an Old Testament reality. And I just think it's interesting that when we're focusing on the day of the Lord, you have an outline there, it describes the Lord coming to execute judgment on all unbelieving and wicked people. Now, we are, as a church, as believers, we're not going to be here. You know, you can see the little timeline there on your outline at the, I think, at the bottom of the, the second page there. The rapture is when the Lord returns in the clouds and he gathers his saints, those who have committed their lives to Christ, from the earth. And then after that, we have the seven-year tribulation, which begins the events of the day of the Lord. That's why he says in verse 1, concerning the times and the seasons, or the epochs. The times is chronos. It's actually the calendar time. But epochs, or seasons, speaks of events. And there's multiple events that lead up to this ultimate day of the Lord. So the Lord is coming to judge the wicked and to gather his saints together, and he will rule and reign here on the earth for a thousand years, Revelation tells us. And the, the day of the Lord describes all of that that will be coming. And so in the Old Testament, there's a couple different places. Now, when you speak of the day of the Lord, you can't get it mixed up with some other days that the Bible mentions. The Bible mentions the day of Christ. That's not the day of the Lord. Okay, the day of Christ. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more and with knowledge and all discernment, Paul writes to the church at Philippi, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for what, Paul? For the day of Christ. Okay, that's a day that's coming, and believers should rejoice in that. It has no judgment associated with it. Why is that? Because Christ, what? He bore our judgment. He bore our shame. He bore the payment for our sins on Calvary. So there's no place for condemnation. The Bible says there's no condemnation for those that are what? In Christ. Or Philippians chapter 2, verse 16. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's a good message, right? You can preach a sermon there for sure. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. You know, I, I, I honestly believe that we live in the most twisted and perverse and crooked generation that almost has ever been. I think the days of Job, or the, the days of Noah were pretty bad, okay, because God wiped everybody out. That's how bad it was. But, and it's not going to get any better, folks. It's not going to get any better. 
So you have to be equipped. He says, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Are we shining as lights for Christ out there in this, this perverted world we live in? Holding fast to the word of life. Listen, purpose clause, so that in the day of Christ... This is a day for believers. I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So Paul speaks of a day of Christ. This is not the day of the Lord. There's no judgment associated with this. Also, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, it speaks of the day of the Lord. Um, he says, and speaking of Christ, he says in verse uh, 3 there, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. He's speaking of some issues they had in the Corinthian church. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus. Who's he talking about? He's talking about believers here, right? You are to deliver this man, this one who's not living for Christ in, within their congregation, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved, what? In the day of the Lord. He's not going to undergo judgment in the day of the Lord. So all those terms, the day of Christ, the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, the day of the Lord Christ, all these terms in the New Testament, they refer to a time when believers will re- receive their rewards for the work that we've done here on earth from the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no fear of pending judgment there. And that's why he says, be be fully aware. You yourselves, in verse 2, 1 Corinthians 5, you yourselves are fully aware. Why are they fully aware? Because Paul painstakingly taught them all about this stuff. He even taught them about the rapture, which was brand new revelation to him. He said it was a mystery. No one's ever heard of it before. And so the New Testament speaks of this this day of the Lord, and as it begins in there in in verse 1 of chapter 5, he's changing, he's making a switch. He's not doing a 180, but he's kind of doing a a, a 90-degree turn because he's still talking about future events, but he's no longer talking about the rapture. Now he's talking about what he calls the day of the Lord, the coming day of the Lord. And the Old Testament mentions this several times, and I think you have listed there for you. If you want to follow along, you can, but I'll just read it for us. In Isaiah chapter 13, verses 6 to 13, listen to what some of the prophecies, some of the prophets said about this day of the Lord in the Old Testament. He says in Isaiah 13, 6, wail, for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. Verse 8, they will be dismayed. Pains and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Verse 9, behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make a land of desolation, to make a land a desolation and destroy it, uh, and to destroy its sinners from it. Verse 10, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. There'll be darkness. The sun will be as dark as it's rising, and the moon will not shed its light. Remember when we had all the smoke issues that even now some in Northern California are dealing with? I want to continue to pray for Barbara and Keith and their home up there that they'd they'd be protected, and others as well um, as they uh, deal with this uh, fire up there. But remember here in the Bay Area when it got dark at noon? (laughs) That was kind of weird. That was really weird. Can you imagine all of a sudden the sun goes away? There's no light at all. Verse 11, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Verse 12, I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Verse 13, Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. That doesn't sound like a party. That doesn't sound like something that you want to hang around for. And I would encourage you this morning, if you've yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ, do it today. Don't wait. Don't wait. 
Even over in Joel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, if you're looking for the book, Joel chapter 2 in the Old Testament, verse 30, he says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. All these things are leading up. They're signs of this pending day of the Lord. Verse 32, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What a wonderful little snippet to be put in there. It's important to realize that. There's always hope. There's hope in Christ. You can cry out to the Lord to be your Savior, to forgive you of your sin. And if you're sitting here pompously saying, well, I don't have any sin. I'm a good person. Well, have you ever told a lie? Have you ever thought something that's dishonoring to someone else or to God? Have you ever taken something that's irrespective of its value, not yours? You're not perfect. There's nobody's perfect. The only person who was ever perfect who ever walked on this earth was who? The Lord Jesus Christ. So don't think too highly of yourselves. You're in the mess just like all, all of us are in the mess. We're all sinners in need of God's forgiveness through Christ. In the 14th chapter of Zechariah, if you go back one book, Matthew, Malachi, Zechariah, second to last book there in the, in the Bible, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1, he says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken and the house is plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Verse 3, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. How would you like to go to battle against the Lord, the God creator? Verse 4, on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two. This is the second coming of our Lord, back to earth. Remember, the rapture, he doesn't come to earth. He's only in the clouds. But at the second coming, he comes down to earth, and his feet split the Mount of Olives from the east to the west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the Mount shall move northward, and the other half southward. Verse 5, And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of, my, of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. Guess who that is? That's us. That's the church. We're coming with him. On that day, there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord. In other words, we're not, we're not given information when this stuff will happen. God says, there's some things I, I just can't tell you, and I'm not going to tell you. Nobody knows this. So whenever you hear somebody say, oh, I believe it's going to happen in 2025, and I'm going to write a book to prove it. Don't believe it. You can just toss it right in the trash. Okay, we had a gentleman here in the Bay Area that tried that, made a lot of money off people, but he's proven to be a false prophet because he was wrong. Verse 8, it says, on that day, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. Verse 9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth on that day. Day of the Lord will be one and his name one. Again, this is the, the Lord coming in his day in judgment and establishing his own kingdom here on earth. And we will rule and reign with Christ here on earth for a thousand years. It's going to be interesting. The day of the Lord was such an important part of divine truth it was such a big part of their theology that even a sermon preached on the day of Pentecost out of Acts chapter 2, Peter preached this, this great sermon. He said in verse 
17 of Acts chapter 2. He stands up, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he begins to preach. What's he preach about? He preaches about this day of the Lord. Verse 17, it shall be in the last days, God says, I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men will see, uh, shall see visions, and your old men will dream dreams, even on my bond slaves, both men and women. I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun will be turned into darkness, there it is again, and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter's drawing this out of the text we just read. He wanted people to understand it. It's a time of judgment on the earth of all the wicked, dead and alive. And it's, it's a time when God will unleash his wrath. Now also in Revelation chapter 19, John also writes of this in verse 11. And this is the very event of Christ's return on the day of the Lord. This is what everything is leading up to. This is what all history is leading up to. In verse 11 of Revelation chapter 19, John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he what? This is the Lord Jesus Christ. He judges and makes war. Notice, he's not coming as a savior at this point. If you haven't met him as savior, it's it's too late at this point. You're going to have to deal with his judgment. In verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. This is why we know this is Christ. Verse 14, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From, the mouth, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. See, we live in a day and age of grace today, right? I mean, you can go out and do things that are unbecoming to the Lord or not glorifying to the Lord, and you're not stricken dead. You could be, but most likely you won't be because we live in this, this age of grace. Well, during the millennium, you do something wrong, you're going to hear about it right away. You know, it's going to be like that school teacher. You couldn't get away with anything in the, in the elementary school. You know, you tried to you know, break a rule or something. They were on you, right? Well, it's going to be 10 times, 100 times that. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thighs, he has written, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This speaks of his lordship, his authority. And then verse 17, it says, and then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their army gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. See, they just don't give up. They don't give up. There's people here today even that that continue to strive against the Lord. They think it's a fanciful tale. They think that, that God doesn't exist. Well, he does. And he will one day carry out his judgment on the earth. It says in verse 20, And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped the image. This tells of what's happening down the road. And we'll speak to this further, but I just wanted to read this text for us this morning because it tells us what is coming down the pike. And we have to be prepared for it. If we're not prepared, guess what? We're going to be deceived. You know, don't 
There's so many people out there today that are, that are teaching errant doctrine, that are not teaching what the Bible declares to be true. They're coming up with their own fanciful tale. And we have to be careful when we get into eschatology that just because we may not understand every word, that doesn't mean it's not true. Um, and so we need to be, be patient with the outworking of God's plan and his purpose. But you notice there that the, the beast and the false prophet, they're, they're basically able to deceive people. They're able to do signs of deception. Uh, we see that even today going on. There's people that claim, oh, you know, they saw this miracle, they saw that miracle, they did this, they did that. And a lot of these people are false teachers. They lift them up to be God, themselves up to be God, not worshiping the one true God. And unfortunately, a lot of these people just want your money. That's all they want. Well, it says that these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. You know, that's, that's one thing that people forget about hell. It's not going to be a party. You're not going to be down there with your friends partying it up. You're going to be enduring the very wrath of God that Jesus sought to spare you from. You're going to be able to look back in time and think, you know what, I remember that day when I was in church and I heard, yes, you need to put your faith in Christ. And what's going to be hard is you're going to be enduring God's wrath while at the same time knowing all of what you heard about Christ is true. But it's too late. You're already in eternity. There's no, there's no way out of that mess. And here they were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And it's not something that ever burns out. You know, when you think of being burned... You know, you burn your hand on the stove or on the barbecue or whatever. You know, it's painful. It's very painful. You know, I've watched shows, I've been in situations where I've seen people who've been burned, like, most of their body. And it's got to be one of the worst, worst ailments to have. Because no matter what you do, you just can't take the pain away. And yet, this is going to go for all eternity, This is what weighs in the balance of someone who's saying, I'm not going to listen to Christ. I'm not going to come to Christ. I think I can work this out on my own. I'm here to tell you, you can't. You need to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Verse 21, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged on their flesh. So you see this day of the Lord is something that's very real. The prophets wrote about it. The apostles, on the very first day of the church, preached a sermon about it. The book of Revelation concludes with this day of the Lord in a lot more detail than we have time to go over this morning. But that's just the moment when the Son of Man sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, and it splits, as Zechariah says, This is the coming day of the Lord. He will not come in a manger. He will not come humbly. He won't come as a baby. He will come as the sovereign king that he is. The Lord of lords and king of kings. He's not going to come to die for your sins again. He will come to take the lives of those who have rejected his sacrifice. But he is coming. And this was not only important to the prophets and the apostles, and not only the way the Bible ends, the way history ends, but this was a very critical subject of our Lord himself. Um, And a lot of times, curiosity is is so powerful in our lives. We want to know all these things. We want to find out an expert that can tell us exactly when everything like this is going to happen. But we have to, first of all, understand that our curiosity about prophecy in the future is God-given. He's given us that curiosity. He created us with that curiosity. In other words, it's normal to wonder what's going to happen. He's placed eternity within our hearts. And that's why his disciples and others were constantly asking the Lord, when will these things happen, Lord? You're talking about all this stuff. When's it going to happen? 
There's nothing wrong with asking that question. But secondly, you have to remember that God isn't always ready to give us the answers to our questions. Sometimes he never gives us the answer. And we have to be okay with that because he's God and we are not. Though everything the Bible contains about the future is is true, all the prophecies, all the eschatology, the Bible speaks about all of that is true, the Bible doesn't contain everything about the future. Because the, the word of God itself says there are some things that the Lord has reserved for his knowledge and his knowledge only. He hasn't revealed it to us through scripture. And God's complete plan for the ages is way beyond, way beyond our ability to figure it out or calculate it. And he himself is the only one that reveals enough to to give us hope and to really motivate us to to trust in him and to live each day to the fullest for, for Christ. Jesus said to those same curious disciples in Acts chapter 1 verse 7, it is not for you to know the times of the epics, the same words that he used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, times and seasons, times and epics, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. See, we don't, we're, we don't operate at the, 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 the pay level grade to say, well, I want to know this. I want to figure this out. You're not going to be able to. So you just have to trust that the word of God is true. And this kind of tells us here that there's going to be a lot of deception that goes on. In verse 2, it says this, this day is going to come like a thief in the night. Right? You're not going to be expecting it. It's going to happen. Even though there's signs that lead to this great day of the Lord. The first sign being the rapture of the church. I mean, just put that in perspective. You think 9-11 was bad with several planes hitting their targets. Think of what it's going to be like when the, when the Lord comes back and all of a sudden all the Christians are gone. You don't think there's Christians that are pilots? What do you think is going to happen to the plane if the pilot's no longer there? What do you think is going to happen to the big rig driving down the freeway and the, 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 the operator's no longer there? It's going to crash. It's going to be a major upheaval. And not just in the United States, worldwide. See, we need to be ready for that day. We need to, I don't want to go through that. I don't want to be left in all the, the rubble and the, the chaos. Praise God that we can comfort our hearts with the words of Paul here and encourage one another with these words. Hey, we're not going to be here. The Lord's coming back for his church, amen? And we need to be alert and we need to be ready for that, that day when he calls us to be with him in the clouds. And by the way, the metaphor of a thief coming in, in Scripture, if you look it up, whenever it mentions a thief coming in the night kind of a thing, it's never, ever used to refer to the rapture of the church. It's never used. And I know there's movies out that kind of portray a different scenario there, but a thief in the middle of the night is never used to portray the rapture of the church. It always describes the day of the Lord, the pending judgment that's coming at the end of the seven-year tribulation period and all the events leading up to that. Um, I mean, think about it. The thief coming is not a hopeful, joyful event. <clears throat> you know, I don't, I don't watch my blink every night. My camera's at the house going, man, I hope the thief shows up tonight. I can't wait. We're going to have a party. No. You know, you, you're, you're hoping it do- he doesn't show up at your house and take your stuff off your porch or your bike in the backyard or whatever it might be. You know, it's never a good thing when a thief shows up. And so this day of the Lord, it speaks, this, speaks of this judgment, God's cataclysmic future judgment of the wicked here on earth. The, the thief in the night is never used to refer to the rapture when the Lord returns for his church. Three things in closing. The day of the Lord is certainly coming. Or what? The word of God is not true. I mean, it is... The word of God is saturated with prophecies and, and, and people writing the words of Scripture speaking of the day of the Lord. And if you say, you know what, I don't, I don't believe that day of the Lord stuff, well then just throw out the whole Bible because you can't believe anything. 
including that Jesus came and he's the only sacrifice for your sin. Throw that out too. So you're kind of left on your own. But the day of the Lord is certainly coming or the other option is don't believe the Bible. Secondly, the day of the Lord will be sudden. Will be sudden. Even though events will lead up to it, it's actually going to be unexpected by the people that are left here to deal with it. Um, And it's for those who are in spiritual darkness, those who did not trust Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And since we know the day of the Lord is coming, we should be alert, we should be sober, we should put on the armor of faith, and we'll get into this when we start to talk about the children of light, because he he says in verse 4 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, but you, he makes a distinguished here He says, hey, all these people are going to have to, to deal with this day of the Lord, but you believers, you are not in darkness, brothers. He's talking to Christians. For that the day to surprise you like a thief. In other words, you're not going to be here. You don't have to worry about it. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. I guess some maybe are drunk all the time. I don't know. I guess they're drunk during the day too, but you get the idea of what they're saying. A lot of bad stuff happens at night. Verse 8, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And verse 9 is really the idea here that we believe in a pre-trib rapture, that we're not going to be here for the wrath of God. And verse 9 speaks to that. We'll get into this next week. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who what? He died for us. He died in our place. Don't think the death of Jesus was some generic death. That he just died for everybody. No. He didn't. That may be hard for you to hear. But it's true. We believe in the limited atonement of Christ. It wasn't unlimited. If it was unlimited, guess what? Everyone would be saved. (laughs) Everyone's sins would be paid for. But when Christ died on the cross, he died a very specific death. He paid the price for those whom he chose before the foundation of the world, the elect, the church. It's not that there are anything special other than that he chose them. You know, don't, don't be thinking that, oh, you know, I'm elect, so I'm, I'm, you know, your head gets big. No, no, no. He didn't choose you because there was any righteousness or goodness in you. He chose you because he sovereignly wanted to put his love upon you. That's what makes our salvation so head-scratching. You walk away and you go, Lord, why me? Why me? Why would God do that for me? And see, the, the other side of that is you say, well, why didn't he save that person? I don't know. I don't know. But he had a good reason. He had a good reason. You can't attribute bad motives to a holy God. Everything God does is righteous and true and pure and holy. We have to hold on to that. That's why when we think of 9-11, you know what? A horrible experience our country went through. But you know what? It happened under the purview of a holy God who could have, if he chose to, stop it. But he didn't. And guess what? People died. Innocent people, children died that day. And we can walk away from that and go, how dare you, God? But we don't have a right to. (laughs) Who are we to question God? He created us. He created everything around us. His perfect plan from all eternity past is being carried out. And I challenge you this morning, don't challenge God. Don't you dare wave your finger in God's face. Because you're literally playing with fire. 
As we prepare our hearts this morning for our communion time, I want to turn to the, the Gospel of Luke because it speaks of, of Christ. And I want to talk about a couple things in the, the closing hours of Christ's death. In Luke chapter 23, or Luke chapter 22, excuse me. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 39, Jesus is there on the Mount of Olives. The same Mount of Olives he's going to revisit when he comes back the second time. This is the first time he was there. Well, let's look at what it says in verse 39. And he came out and he went as his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. He's going to pray, and it was his custom. This this should really convict our hearts. I think we skip over this a lot as believers. But this was something that was so integrated into his life that he didn't go a day without this. This was his custom. He sought out his father in prayer. You don't know how much it grieves our hearts when, you know, we basically have, have had two, well, three prayer times. We have one for the worship team here at 8 o'clock in the morning. And if you, you want to come to that, you're more than, more than welcome to that. We just pray for the service, and someone gives a little devotion from about 10 minutes long. And then we have a prayer meeting over in the fellowship hall. I think it's at 9.30. And it always grieves my heart, because usually I have to go to the bathroom after I get done with practice, so I, I scoot through the fellowship hall, and there's maybe two. Maybe three people there at the prayer meeting. I'm thinking, what is going on? Do we not believe in prayer? Do we think uh, we don't need to pray? We're beyond that? I challenge you to come out. It may just be you. I don't know. One other person, possibly. But I would challenge you to come out. And the things we pray for, we pray for this service. We pray for the people who will be coming to this service. Pray that their hearts will be open to the word of God. Pray that God would move through the worship and through the teaching to build up his church. You think that would be important? Especially on a Sunday. The Lord's Day. Yeah, right. Right? You know, who's, who's playing today? You know, I got to get home. hope grab a bite to eat after the fellowship hall and watch the football. You know, I mean, this is how we think. Did my 60 minutes in church, 90 minutes in church, which this guy would shut up so we go get something to eat and get out of here. This is the Lord's day. And by the way, whenever the Lord referred to a day in the word of God, okay, it's always a 24-hour period. It's not two hours designated to a Sunday morning. It's the Lord's day. And he says here, this was his custom, verse 40, and when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. That's all he said to them. And when he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, so think about how far you can throw a stone. And he knelt down and he prayed. And here's what he prayed. This is an interesting prayer. If you, you can do a whole study on this, we're not going to do that this morning. But verse 42, Father, if you are willing, kind of what Ken was speaking about earlier when he opened up the service, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. What was Jesus saying here? God, if there is any other way (laughs) possible, how's he speaking? He's speaking from his humanness, right? He's speaking as the incarnate son of God, the God who put on flesh. He had a personality like we have a personality. If, If you poked him with a pin, he would bleed. Okay, he was a human being. But he was also God, fully incarnate. And this was the human part of Christ saying, hey, Lord, if there's any other way possible. Now, in his deity, he's like, I know there's not. (laughs) But if there is, remove this cup from me. What is the cup? The cup of suffering. The cup that holds all of our sins. I mean, can you imagine having to drink a cup of sin having never, ever sinned in your entire life. You were perfect up to this point. In every way, you were pure, you were holy. You had to be because you were God. 
But now you're holding a cup in your hands that's full of sin. That's full of God's wrath, judgment on those sins. And he's saying, Lord, if there's any other way. If there's any other way. And yet, you know what? Not my will. I can't say this in my humanness, uh, but yours be done, God. I want to do your will. That's why I came. In verse 43, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. This is how strenuous this event was in the life of Christ. This was such a horrible time in his human life here on earth. I mean, he needed to be ministered to. I mean, God needed to be ministered to. Can you wrap your mind around that? I can't. He needed to be strengthened in his flesh. In verse 44, it says, In being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Lord, how many times have we gone to prayer about something in our life? Lord, take this sickness away. And nothing happens. Lord, give me this job. Nothing happens. Lord, give me a wife. Give me a husband. Nothing happens. How many times do we return in agony saying, you know what? I'm not giving up, Lord. I'm going to continue to pray earnestly because I believe in the God that you are. I believe in the character of God. He prayed more earnestly. And he prayed so hard his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. There's a medical condition where you can become so stressed out. I've, I've seen people so stressed out, they have bloodshot eyes. Well, this is even more than that, to the point where the capillaries in your skin burst, and blood literally comes out of your pores with your sweat. This is how much agony he was in. Verse 45, and when he arose from prayer, he came to his disciples... <laughs> Oh, they were praying. No. And he found them sleeping. This is like a picture of the church to me. You know, I've referred to it before, but Keith Green wrote a wonderful song called Asleep in the Night, talking about the church. Asleep in the Light, talking about the church. Even though we have Christ, we have the Holy Spirit, we live in a sinful world, and we're just asleep. And all we're concerned about, oh, Jesus, just come get me out of here. We're not concerned about doing any work for him. We're not concerned about praying for the lost souls in our community or in the world. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Why are we not praying more for the souls of Redwood City? Why are we not praying more and being committed to the things of God? I mean, we're committed to other things. We're committed to going to concerts. We're committed to, to, to seeing movies. We're committed to eating at restaurants. We're committed to a whole lot of things. But when it comes to prayer, we come, come to being committed to our walk with the Lord. Somehow, we fall way short. Moving on in Luke 23, verse 44, it says, It's now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Darkness speaks of God's judgment, just like we read earlier. There's going to come a day, the day of the Lord, when there will be darkness. The light from the sunshine will no longer shine. It says, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, in the Holy of Holies, there was this huge curtain, thick curtain, And it separated where the priest could go and where everybody else had to stay out of. He would go in there and offer sacrifices. But nobody could go in there. If you went in there on your own, you'd probably be, well, you would. You'd be struck dead. It's happened. (laughs) That curtain was torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So he knew exactly what was happening. He knew exactly where he was. He knew exactly what was taking place. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, that's what they viewed it as. Hey, let's go watch him crucify another another nut, nut job. 
They viewed this spectacle. When they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. In other words, they realized, whoa, there's something different about this guy they hung today. There's something different about that guy that's hung on that cross. And all his acquaintances and women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. I think it's interesting. Those who followed him were at a distance, whereas those who looked at his spectacle were probably right there at the foot of the cross wanting to see somebody die. How many times do we distance ourselves from the Lord? Because we're not bold in our faith. And then in verse 20, chapter 24, verse 25, this speaks of the resurrection of Christ. We saw his prayer. We saw his death. Verse 25, it says, And he said to them as he's walking down the road, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He's speaking of people that were there with him along the way. They should have recognized him. They didn't. They were so stricken with their grief. Verse 26, Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? This is Jesus Christ talking to them. They're going, oh man, you don't understand. The Savior's dead. Woe is us. And he's going, really? Boy, you slow, slow of heart to believe. Yeah, have you forgotten everything I told you? Everything the prophets have told you? You forgot my promise to return? And beginning with Moses and the, all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He said, okay, you didn't get this second, first time, you didn't get the second time. I've shared this with you time and time, but you know what? I'm a patient God. I love you so much, I'm going to go through this whole deal again. Unless you missed anything, I'm going to stop, start all the way at the beginning with what Moses said, and I'm going to work my way through the whole entire Old Testament. Everything that it said about me, I'm going to share with you. So that it's crystal clear that your God is not dead. Yeah, your God died physically on a cross, but he didn't die spiritually. He paid for your sins. When God, the point that God cashed his check was the fact that he raised him from the dead, victorious over sin and death. See, this is what our faith speaks of. This is what we need to put our faith and trust in, the message of the gospel. And so when we talk about the end times, we talk about future day of the Lord. I'm here to tell you, you don't want to wait. You don't want to put off your commitment to Christ. And that commitment comes from your own heart. Your heart recognizing that you're a sinner before a holy God. And that you need your sins to be forgiven. That you can't pay for. Give up that idea. You can't be good enough that God will ever love you in a way that you should be loved. You can't be. Because we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of God's glory. And it's only through Christ that we can have that forgiveness. I want to ask the worship team to come. We're going to sing a couple songs as we distribute the elements here. And once again, this is a time of communion. This is a time of remembrance. This is a time when we, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, Focus on what he's done for us. And so we're going to first pass out the cracker, the bread, and you can take one as he, they pass it by. And uh, just hold on to that, and then I'll pray, and we'll all partake together, and then we'll pass out the, the juice as well. And these elements are not, this doesn't become the body of Christ. It doesn't become the blood of Christ. I don't do some hocus pocus, and, and, and all of a sudden it becomes the blood of Jesus. We don't believe that. Uh, These are symbols. These these are things that represent the body of Christ. They represent the blood of Christ. And they represent everything that he did on our behalf at Calvary. And so as believers, we want to enter into this time very reverently and examining our own hearts as Scripture calls us to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. And Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks truth into our lives. And Father, we pray that even now as we... um, pass out these elements that that you would prepare our hearts for our time of communion together. And Lord, we ask that you would uh, help us to reflect on our own 
our own inability to save ourselves. Father, we are, we are called to be wholly given over to you, to trust in you for the salvation of our souls. And Lord, we, we can't do that if we're still holding on to something of value in our own lives. Jesus himself said that to come to Christ means to walk away from everything. His disciples left families, they left jobs, they left careers. They left their own religion, really, to follow Christ and to follow Christ alone. And so, Father, we pray as we sing these songs in preparation of our communion time that you would minister, you would work. And if there's any here that has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I pray even in the quietness of this moment they'd be able to call out to you, Lord, save me, a sinner. Be gracious to me. Thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.